Welcome to the Sydney Film Festival Talks podcast series, Keeping It Real. This series showcases several of the filmmaker talks that were held throughout the Sydney Film Festival in June 2022. In this episode of Keeping It Real, we join film writer Sandy George as she delivers the annual McPherson Lecture and asks some pretty tough questions about what Australianness is and film funding. Enjoy. Good afternoon and welcome to what what I think is probably the final conversation at the Hub for the festival. My name is Deanne Weir. I am the chair of Sydney Film Festival and it is my honour to welcome you to the annual Ian McPherson lecture. Before I begin, I just want to acknowledge that we are meeting today on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to Elders past and present. Our First Nations Australians have been telling stories for over 60,000 years and um, it's our honour to continue that tradition here. And when I talk about Ian McPherson, that Ian was one of the very critical movers and shakers who started um, the Sydney Film Festival, which next year will celebrate our 70th festival, which is very exciting. And we've been holding this lecture for over 30 years. And uh, for many years, David Stratton, who was one of the um, our long-running festival directors, David would do this as an in-conversation. But as we need to as a festival, we've continued to evolve over the last couple of years. And I'm incredibly, very, very much looking forward to today's conversation because the wonderful Sandy George is going to come up on stage in a moment and talk to us about a paper that, uh, a platform paper that she has just written and will be being released uh, today online by Currency House. And we really are grateful to both Sandy and Currency House for allowing us to be the venue for the launch of, of this paper. And Sandy's provocation is a question around the level of Australianness in Australian content and asking whether we have enough, what is it, should there be more? And Sandy is uniquely placed to be asking these questions and leading this conversation. Um, she's one of our most experienced and best-loved uh, screen industry journalists. You may well have seen her taking uh, taking the lead throughout the festival on a number of, you know, very thoughtful and fascinating in conversations with our filmmakers. And those conversations are such an incredibly important part of what we do here at the film festival. It's not just about watching the films, it's obviously about understanding where the filmmakers are coming from and seeing the unique role that films play in overall screen culture and what that actually means for our culture as a country and um, and the role that that plays in sort of the role that Australia play- has in international culture as well. So Sandy's going to join us and then uh, once she has talked us through some of the points in her paper, she's then going to be joined on stage by three very accomplished screen practitioners. So we have Christina Seaton from Causeway Films, Emile Sherman from um, Seesaw, and then being also joined by Grania Brunston, who is the head of content at Screen Australia. So you are in for a treat. Thank you very much for being here. And of course, we will have some conversation at the end. But let's kick off. Please join me in welcoming to the stage, Sandy George. Thank you, Deanne, and I'm loving that new bikey chick look, frankly. 
Um, so, hello everyone, a small but perfectly formed audience. I too acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge and pay my respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who might be in the room. As Deanne just said, I'm talking to you because I have written an essay for Currency House for their new their new platform paper series, which aims to encourage meaningful and informed debate about big issues to do with arts and culture. And my paper is called Nobody Talks About Australianness on Our Screens. And I'd like to thank Harriet Parsons, uh, Julian Merrick and Martin Portis from Currency House for giving me the space and the time to write it. And... As Deanne said, I'm up here as part of a long tradition that celebrates Ian McPherson, who was a man who was instrumental in the establishment of the festival in the 50s. And it's both an honour and it's also appropriate to be here, I think, because to me the, the festival often feels like a chance to kind of look through a series of windows into other cultures, and this essay really lays out my increasing concern that you know, less Australian drama is being made, it's harder to find, there's growing uncertainty about its future, but also kind of layered over that. Some of it feels a lot less like a window into Australia, specifically a window into, you know, our own backyard. So thank you to Deanne and Nashen Moodley and Jenny Neighbour and Lisa Kitching for giving me this spot. So I'm going to talk for about 10 minutes and I'm going to summarise the paper. It's more than 15,000 words, so it's going to be quite a bold summary. And also I do put a lot of random things into the paper because it's a very complex industry and I go down a few rabbit holes. So some of that is certainly stripped out of what I'm going to say. So as the said, I've reported on the industry for a very long time and certain questions have shadowed Australian film and TV drama for a very long time. Feels like forever. And, you know, it's expensive compared to other formats and our population is small, so how can we afford it? And, you know, is enough being made given how much foreign drama is available and how can it compete on the budgets it does? All those things. And today I think all those concerns have grown bigger and the, the paper spells out the tangle of reasons why that is. One of the big ones, of course, is that Australians get a lot of drama from the streamers now, Netflix and Stan and also other places online. And that said, though, the streamers are commissioning, and that is exciting, but it's also scary to me because it will change the face of Australian drama and the big unknown is how maybe all our dramas are going to end up like Byron Bay's, who knows? But even when Australian drama is made for these platforms, it's such a tiny slice of the vast array of content that's online and it's hard to find. And also you'd have to have so many subscriptions to all these platforms in order to see it all. And it is madness to think that once they, even though they're commissioning now, they are going to be commissioning in five years' time because, you know, if the crunch came and they didn't have the capacity to commission stuff across the world, then they're going to make drama in the territories where they have to and they don't have to here at this stage. So my concerns about Australian drama are also exacerbated by the fact that globalisation has really intensified across the world. 
and it's affecting national industries everywhere and foreign-owned Australian companies are making a lot more of our drama. Australian-owned companies are getting into situations where they're more service providers and more decisions get made internationally than ever have before. I mean, the fact that Neighbours disappeared off our screens because of a decision in the UK by Channel 5 after 37 years was a bit of a, oh, my God, you know, that's, that is incredible. Also, it breaks my heart that um, the significant blockages in cinemas between Australian films and the cinemas themselves have just been allowed to continue. Like it's madness that we are all paying for films that we actually don't have a hope of finding or seeing on the big screen, which is what they're made for. And also Australian drama heavily relies on good regulation and taxpayer funding. And in my opinion, um, recently governance has been quite patchy and inattentive, and it's leaned too much towards economic value rather than cultural value. And I think that really has set the tone for everybody. I guess one of the things I've tried to do in the paper is just draw all these points together and try and stop kind of fighting or infighting on single issues rather than looking at the whole landscape. And then, of course, there's this other thing that I've paid significant attention to in the platform paper, and that is you know, something that nobody talks about, I think, which is if Australia isn't recognisable on screen in some form, it's impossible for a drama to have local cultural value. And that cultural value is the primary reason that the government puts money into film and TV. I actually dislike intensely the term cultural value. It's like, you know, eat your vegetables kind of term. Um, so again, I'm saying, I'm saying that on screen Australianness that is a term that I do like and I hope will be adopted, Australianness, I've used it about five times already, has to be there for cultural value to occur. And I'm not saying it guarantees cultural value because, you know, it's a lot about the quality of the production as well. Does it deliver? And also, you know, different people like different things. So I'm not saying Australianness you know, means cultural value. I'm just saying without it, there's no potential for that. For that sort of intensity of feeling that you get from recognising that something is yours and that it's about you. So I guess, you know, cultural value to me is more of a feeling than a label. And I'd like to claim the sort of number one fan ticket for Australian production. Some of you in this room that aren't in the industry might not know that Australian production as defined by government and industry doesn't have to have on-screen Australianness to get taxpayer funding, your funding. It might be an overseas story made by Australians, it might be a co-production, or it might have its Australianness watered down in the hope of sort of pleasing offshore commissioners, or it might be Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. And I think Baz is a genius and I admired Elvis and I love that it was made here. If anyone's going to get a tax rebate for Australian production, I think it should be locals for, you know, big budget production, I mean. But I don't get the sort of cultural buzz that I'm talking about by watching Elvis. I absolutely believe that film and TV makers should be free to do anything with anyone, anywhere. I think filmmaking is an art. 
And I know that production companies need a certain amount of freedom to stay strong and healthy, to generate production, to manage to get international funding, which is, you know, nearly always needed for big budget, not big budget, but long form um, professional film and TV. But I also believe that the industry's key stakeholders, Australians, aren't served as attentively as they should be and to some extent are taken for granted a bit and I really do think that we need to talk about this. The paper does suggest some ideas for going forward and just so you know, it's available now on the Currency House website as a download in a P- as a PDF but it will be published later this year, but only after more pondering and consideration of the feedback and revisions. So if I'm crucified for this Australianness idea, I'll put it into the paper. Um, my ideas really fall into three camps. Firstly, Screen Australia, um, which is the main federal agency. It spends about $65 million but spent about $65 million on the industry in 2021. It's direct and discretionary money. And I think that all the programs and initiatives should be sort of thought about in terms of this lens of exceptional cultural value, which has to mean Australianness. And yes, it means that that has to be thrashed out to some degree. But, you know, I don't think another cop show really, what's the point? I don't think I'm snobby about what content is. I mean, I love a belly laugh as much as a lump in the throat, but I do reckon it has to be long form to carry kind of impact and call me old fashioned, but I think it needs theme as well as story. What's finally come to pass is you can watch what you want when you want. And we have been hit by a tsunami of content. And I just think you can't waste a cent of taxpayer funding, especially as the taxpayer funding really does have a big impact on what gets made. And I think you know, I'd love to see Screen Australia seen as a as a really significant cultural institution and lead like it is that. It wouldn't be such an issue if we if we made so little Australian content. And also, especially for those people in the room who might not know this, there is another pot of money, the tax rebate money, and it's there for Elvis and other productions, and it's uncapped for both individual projects and also for also overall, and no one is sitting in judgment on that money. And it's still 40%, so the rebate's worth 40% of what you spend in Australia for cinema films, and it's risen to 30% for TV. And that rebate equated to $175 million in 2021, and it will rise as budgets rise because it is a percentage So that's Green Australia. Secondly, in my sort of ideas in three camps is the federal government. Um, I think there needs to be action in Canberra. I admit that I had lost faith that the former government could apply vision and enthusiasm to its governance of the sector, given its focus on economic value. But I also would like to say that, you know, traditionally over decades there has been bipartisan support from Liberal and Labor. But I do think people have become more of a priority since the 21 May election. And I really do think that creating the right conditions to breed Australian drama and getting it out there can help the new government kind of unite the country and, you know, build a compassionate society if it's not blood splattered horror, maybe. 
And I talk about how to get that ball rolling from the Canberra perspective in several ways, like I think the production industry needs to be challenged to shake things up and find new and better ways of delivering cultural value. And I think all the financial incentives that are in place need to be clarified. And I think there needs to be a look at all the regulation that exists. And I think there should be guarantees over SBS and ABC, as well as over the streamers. And the third camp of ideas, and I guess this excites me the most, is just the public. Like all my adult life, I've been asked, where do I find these films that you are talking about from friends and family and strangers? I think there are plenty of Australians who are massive fans of homegrown production, but there's no ongoing mechanism for them to exercise their love of it. I get texts when a a shop has a sale. Like, it's just crazy that I can't sign up for texts on when a new Australian series is on the telly or when a new film is in cinemas. And, you know, people think film and TV is really sexy and that should be harnessed. I think a community of supporters could make a really phenomenal difference to the production industry. Like, imagine if there was kind of a lottery for special production initiatives, you know, you could perhaps make 20% of the money go to a good other cause. Yeah, I just think the public needs to be brought into the tent more. And the other big thing about doing that is, of course, that, you know, viewers are voters too, and there would be political value in that. I think a benefit of COVID is that we're more aware of how we live in different sorts of lives, you know, how we're different to someone that lives in another suburb or I think there has been improvements in making the industry more diverse on screen and off screen, but it's almost like I'd like to see that much more foregrounded. And I think it's it's a great time to think more deeply about how the industry could better serve Australia. You know, the thing I'm asked the most when I talk to the, talk about this paper to anyone is, yeah, but what do you mean by Australianness? And I, again, I I say it's anything recognisable. It's not enough in itself to excite viewers, but we need to retain it to have any hope of that. And, you know, I want Australianness to be talked about, but I also hope it doesn't dominate the conversation um, because there are a lot of structural issues that I think have been allowed to just continue and that's really problematic. I hope this Current Tea House new platform paper can help with all of this. I again thank Current Tea House and also the Sydney Film Festival and I thank you all for coming and listening. So I now invite uh, Emil Sherman from Seesaw Films and Christina Seaton from uh, Causeway Films and also Grunya Brunston from Screen Australia to come up on stage for some discussion about all of this. So you all agreed to do this before reading my paper and I sincerely thank you for your faith in that. But as you know, you know, you may not agree with a lot of what I say in the paper, but but the whole point of this discussion is really how are we going to address getting more and better TV drama on screen with on-screen Australianness onto our screens to be seen. So I will just um, um, introduce you in a, in a better way. Emil Sherman is from 
Cecil films, and his credits include The Power of the Dog, Lion, Top of the Lake, and King's Speech, for which he won an Oscar, and he's also been nominated twice since. And I'm also going to recommend Emile's podcast, which is called Principle of Charity, which encourages kind of generous discussion on um, issues you know, which is really the whole point of the paper. Um, next to me is Christina Seaton from Causeway Films, and um, it's pretty amazing that Causeway has the two Australian films that are in competition this year, You Won't Be Alone and Blaze, and she uh, also made The Babadook and The Nightingale. And in the middle is Grunya Brunston, um, a lot of power and influence at Screen Australia. She's quite new in the role of head of content and she came from Screen New South Wales. And as I said to her earlier, if she wants, she can just use the Anthony Albanese defence and just say everything is due to the old guard. <laughs> so my first question, which I have all, I have warned you all about, what do you like most about what I say in the paper, and thanks very much for taking the time to read it. And what do you dislike most? Emil, do you want to start us off on that? Well, I, th I thought the, um, the premise of the paper is fantastic. It's great to be shining a light on cultural value. And it's, we're so used to hiding behind jobs and the economy as though we need to justify what we do only in terms of jobs and the economy. And obviously, that's hugely important in and of itself as a way to you know, encourage human flourishing. But so is cultural value. That's important in and of itself as well. I thought that there is a umbrella cultural value that I felt like you jump too readily into the Australianness because there is cultural value in Australian storytelling wherever it's set. You don't ask a musician, uh, are your lyrics uh, about an Australian or are they about someone who's not Australian? There's cultural value in a great work of art or a st story that's told by Australians, which doesn't need to be justified in terms of jobs only. But I think shining the light on the Australianness part of cultural value, I think is fantastic. And I mean, I could talk for a long time, but I'll pass on to others. But I think that, that was, it's great to be having this conversation and focusing on that. It's interesting you talk about that Australian point of view on stories. Like it's something that documentaries makers use a lot, don't they? But I don't know. I'm sorry, but it's instinctual to me. It doesn't really wash with me, that Australian point of view on overseas stories. But that's just personal. Yeah, I'm not necessarily saying you have to believe that an Australian, that Baz Luhrmann's Elvis is Australian but it has cultural value as a movie, as in it has artistic and cultural value in and of itself. You want Australians to be telling stories and we want to use our, um, I, I think you could justify using government money and taxpayer money. I mean, that, that's the first point. The sort of bigger point I'd make though is that if your aim was just to create more Australianness in your more narrow definition, I think having a, a healthy industry that encourages Australian storytelling, that boosts them to be able to tell stories wherever they happen to, to take place, is the best way to achieve what you want. Because when an Australian director is supported to tell a story that might be set in America but shot here, has enough Australianness to it that it qualifies for the various tax credits and things, putting aside Screen Australia direct investment for a second, you create, start creating a really fantastic virtuous cycle, a sort of snowball effect. And if it's kept too tight and we're trying to hold on to a, a much more narrow definition, as important as that is, you can miss out on some of that 
snowballing effect, which ends up meaning that those directors come back to Australia or the actors come back, they can now green light the shows and you can get, I think Australianness will emerge organically if we have the right conditions to, to really um, fertilise the soil of, of, our, of our storytellers and the industry here. Um, Christina, you just nodded at that. And for those in the room uh, who don't know about You Won't Be Alone and Blaze, the two films in competition, one is just so Australian, um, Blaze. I would recommend it comes out late August. I mean, the thing that's amazing about it is it's got a performance by a 12-year-old at its heart and it's just amazing. And it's visually bold. Del Catherine Martin, the two-time Archibald Prize winner, um, made the film but it's also about something it's about violence against women it's incredible the other film you won't be alone was shot in serbia is does do the pigs in it look australian no um no but what what do you think about the paper and you know what, what did you like about it what didn't you like about it i guess i like that you i, I do agree that creating more work or or fostering more work to be created, more drama to be created will create, well, one, that it gives people the opportunity to hone their craft and for gems to emerge from that. I think that's absolutely true. And I guess that's what we do, I suppose, at Causeway or have been so far is really seeking out that new talent and giving them the space and the time and the, uh, and I guess the, the trust and really unearthing the stories that they want to tell. So it's really about trusting the creative process and, you know, those really intimate, authentic, original stories that they want to tell. I guess what I don't agree with is when you put parameters around it so early in a nascent process, it's already so nebulous you know, creating a, a beautiful original piece of work. And I think as producers, we do want to protect that and to say, you know, is this Australian or not as the first kind of criteria to me is probably too, too hamstringing and it's that process early on. Um, so I think yeah, it needs to, and I guess the, the, the example of, um, say, Goran Stileski's You Won't Be Alone is a story. He's an Australian Macedonian filmmaker. It's a story he's written in Australia. We developed and post-produced it here fully, but it's a film set in Macedonia uh, in a foreign language. And But then his second film is is very much an Australian story. It's of an age. It's a coming-of-age gay love story set in Macedonia, in Melbourne, sorry. And so I guess you never know what that first film leads to, you know, may lead to. Like Emil said, it's it's kind of like, if he hadn't been given the opportunity to make that first film overseas, I don't know if he would have made the second one. And Focus Features bought the first one and bought the second one, and I don't think they would have picked up a very low-budget, kind of very Australian, almost ochre kind of gay coming-of-age love story if that hadn't been the case. Yeah. You make me think about two things in what you've just said. I'm really curious about, um, I mean, I love the fact that a lot of your films are made by first-timers, and I'm really curious about why you think, well, why do you end up making a lot of films abroad? Obviously, it's clear with Goran, 
But um, Causeway also made another fantastic film called Buoyancy. I mean, is it just, is, do you think your taste as producers for, like, adventure, I don't know what it is, that's one question, why do you think that happens when you're flushing out new talent? And secondly, um, you know, this whole thing about flushing out talent just occupies so much of my mind. Like, I think about the fact that there's film courses all over Australia and I feel as though there's not enough connection between those courses and the professional film industry. Like I imagine that, you know, there's at least one person that's a genius every one or two years in those courses and, you know, are there systems in place that we can flush them out more, you know. But so I've forgotten the, f- oh, the first one about why you think you make a lot overseas and the second one, yeah, do you think there's enough flushing out of new talent? And when you are looking for development money, which is the riskiest money in the film industry, do you think Screen New South Wales state money and state money is generally thought of as more economic money, I guess, or do you think of Screen Australia money? Well, both. You think, which pot shall I get at? Uh, should I start from the last question? <laughs> um, I, I, unfortunately, we don't think much about uh, going to Screen New South Wales first. Um, we usually tend to go to Screen Australia because I think, yeah, I think the remit is, is usually, I think the idea is that at the moment we feel like when we go in, we will just get a lot less than we need. But as, as a, as a company, I guess Sam and I are very involved in development. So we can do a lot sort of internally. So we do, we are very, very involved in development and can do a lot of, of work with very little money, I guess. Or we can go have the money go a long way. And sorry, what was the second question? Why do you reckon you end up doing a lot of films overseas? I don't think it's a conscious decision. I think we just um, basically see short films. We see the work that some of those creatives that we pick out have created and are really impressed by it. And we ask them what they want to do next. And it just so happened that Rod Rathjen, who made, you know, two beautiful short films, one overseas and one in Australia, came to came to us with this story and it, he was just really passionate about it and we wanted to back that and we thought it was a really important story to tell. It's a story about a young boy who um, leaves Cambodia to sort of in hope for a better life and, in, and crosses into Thailand and becomes enslaved on a fishing trawler and it's also the fact that in Cambodia, I guess, we doesn't have a very strong, if at all, a, a film industry and we felt like this was one story we wanted to support and it's meaningful and we're deeply moved by it and we wanted to make it. And we made it for very, very little money as well. So, uh, and I guess in Goran's case, it's absolutely the same again. Like we just were attracted to that particular story and it just moved us deeply and we wanted to make it and we thought it was commercial. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Christina. And uh, sorry, I just wanted to mention too, in terms of flushing out talent, I think there needs to be, this is, I guess, how we came to success is really making, or how, how I came to success and where I learned the most is making short films and giving filmmakers more opportunities to make short films, I think is a great way to hone their craft and get to festivals and win awards and be seen and then get to that next level. Yeah. Um, Anthony, I mean Grunya, um, what did you like and dislike about the paper? 
I love that we're talking about content and Australian content in particular. I don't think there's ever been a better time to talk about it. Um, you know, the content, the growth of content over the last few years and the anticipated growth globally of content means it's really important that we are looking at what's happening with Australian content to ensure that it is part of that global makeup. And we are a very small part of the global industry, as you point to in your paper. Um, but I think Australia has generally punched above its weight in this area in terms of how many stories get to be shown overseas. And I think that's awesome. But we want to ensure that that continues to happen, that um, while we're making Australian stories, they're things that are locally relevant, but has international resonance. Um, the fact that Australia is such a multicultural place, that it has so many different experiences and people who have um, experienced so much both here, but also brought those lives with them from other places, means that we have um, stories that can travel um, and I think that's a fantastic thing, um, both for audiences at home to understand the evolving Australianness of Australia, because it is a changing thing and it's certainly not the same as it was maybe 50 years ago, not even what it was 20 years ago. And in another 20 years' time, it'll be different again. Um, and I think that's something that's really quite exciting about it. And, but I think our content needs to keep up with that and not always hark back to the good old days of, Australian kind of, as you said, Christina Ocker type content, there's a place for that too, but it's not the only game. It's interesting because one of the films that really excited me last year was um, Here Out West, which I think didn't go through the Screen Australia usual doors. It started as enterprise money and um, short films and then was made into a feature. I'm talking before your time, but do, is that correct? Um, well, we spotted, when I was at Screen New South Wales, we supported it too, and it, it originated through an industry development program because it was co-curious who have programs that are about working with um, writers in over a very long period. So they have a very long process to uncover new writers and new voices, work with them for a long time before they ever get to a project. So that's how that one started out several years ago. Then when they had the project, it then came in through the regular development area and the regular production kind of area. But its origination was quite different because it wasn't a project right at the beginning. Yeah, because I guess that made me think, you know, do we need to be more proactive about saying, hey, this is what we're doing? Because when I talk about Screen Australia as being sort of a significant cultural institution, I suppose what I mean is, like, I want them to be one of those tour guides with the flag that says, like, come this way, you know, not not being really strict about it, but just sort of trying to lead by example. But can you talk about the way that you talk about cultural value as someone who is making decisions about what gets made from your experience at Screen New South Wales and now? Mm -hmm. I guess that, that cultural value is something that is talked about in every assessment meeting um, for development, for um, scripted production, for documentary production, and even for online production as well. And it always was at Screen New South Wales too. And not in a you've got to eat your Brussels sprouts kind of way, but, you know, let's talk about the cultural value of this. And certainly in, um, in the state agencies, we had um, priority areas is what we used to call them because they were underserved by what was generally supported, both in the arts and in the screen side of things. So stories from people from Western Sydney, from regional New South Wales, from people with disability, from people from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander background and young people. So they were having 
having looked at all the things that had where applications came from and then what was funded, they were um, underrepresented. So if something came in from people from those areas, they were absolutely looked at to see how can we grow these different areas so that they we've got better representation of the community of New South Wales in our stories. In terms of Screen Australia, it's absolutely something that's looked at because that's the first thing that I think staff and the agency, everybody talks about that we have a cultural remit and it is about supporting things that speak to that cultural remit. What what that looks like in practice is going to be different for every project. As, I mean, it's a slippery thing, as, as you've identified in your paper as well. It's not just one thing that you can go, yep, Australian, awesome. It's there are kind of, it will manifest in very different ways. Some will be very recognizably Australian on screen. Some will be more behind the screen in terms of how stories are developed and who's making it and all of that kind of stuff. But all of those kind of permutations are looked at for every project. Why do you think that Graham, Graham's the CEO of Screen Australia, Grunya's boss, why do you think he often says that there's not enough, enough good projects coming in the door? Because that's very relevant to this, I think. Um, I think I think great projects globally as well, not just locally, not everything that we see on screen is great and not everything that we get in through the door in terms of applications is great either. But we need to to support, I think, a spectrum of things because how do things get to be great? You've got to have a a training ground. You've got to have talent escalation. You've got to have things that, you know, if the market wants something, if the, there's an audience for it, there are kind of, there's a lot of kind of different um, things to think about when you, whether it's a feature or whether it's telly or whether it's online. Is this something that the team or the writer or the director has been kind of playing with for a while? And you kind of, you just got to go with it and believe that if it's not this one, maybe it's the next one that's actually going to really launch somebody's career. Um, I think there's a whole spectrum. We have to respond to the applications we get. We want to see more great applications. We want to see even more good applications coming in, um, which is why there's a lot of money that goes into development and into initiatives through development. So whether it's, you know, working with SBS on an emerging riders incubator that sees riders put into production companies for a one year residency or working with a riders guild to do other types of initiatives, working with Australians in film in LA. Like there's lots of different kind of pathways that we use for that. A lot of online has really grown for us. So not just kind of the Stan ABC me online, but online, online, like TikTok and Instagram and, and that kind of thing as well, especially as a talent escalator. It's a lot cheaper. It's easier to make. People can make it with smaller crews and it's direct to consumer. So there's immediate feedback loops happening. So for story development, for building audiences, that kind of thing. I mean, Christina can speak to this better than me in terms of Raka Raka and, you know, what's happened with them, you know, the most successful content creators in Australia. Um, if you're talking about eyeballs, it's um, it's those guys. You know, now they're, they're they're moving into long form. They didn't have to because they're incredibly successful where they are on YouTube. Mm. Um, but I think you know it'll be really interesting to see what happens with their future. Yeah, I suspect many in this room don't know about Raka Raka. Can you tell us a bit about them and why did they want to go into long form? Because one of my arguments is, of course, that it's long form that has the value more than anything else. I think they've always wanted to do that from the beginning and they're basically these two twin boys as teenagers. I think they're in their late 20s now. Um, but they basically started making their own stuff and the only way they could do it was just to 
blush it up basically in their backyard and it's uh, that's what it is it's kind of these send up horror slasher comedy clips that you know garnered six and a half billion views and I don't know five million subscribers and they've been incredibly successful but from the very beginning they've always wanted to uh, go into long form and become, you know, these serious filmmakers, I guess, in some way. They both worked on the Babadook as, you know, assistants in lighting and production. And so, and they've been very diligent, like over the past few years, they've sent us TV ideas and feature ideas. And this particular one called Talk to Me, which we just shot in Adelaide, was just one where we thought this has an incredible hook. It's got, you know, some deeper themes and messaging and it's the perfect kind of transition from from what they've been doing traditionally on YouTube into the theatrical space. And it felt like a real theatrical proposition actually. And that's kind of rare. It's something that really speaks to a youth audience. It's, you know, got enough it's really scary. It's got horror, but it's got something to say. So it's elevated enough where we felt like, yes, we want to get behind it. And it's been interesting that, you know, we just went to Cannes and we sold basically the world to different territories. And it just um, goes to show how the theatrical appetite for that particular film still exists. So that's been, you know, it's a rare thing these days that you still have true kind of breakout potential um, and bringing the youth audience back into cinema. but The blowing up shit genre. Yeah. <laughs> um, Emil, you had a funny look on your face when I said to Grania, why does Graham say we don't get enough good applications or were you thinking about what you had for breakfast or something at the time? Well, just, you know, it's really hard to make good stuff and that's something which in a sense, you didn't address in the paper because I guess that wasn't the, the purpose of it, but it is really hard. Mm. And so I think it's all about trying to find the right conditions. You know, in our interview, I likened it to a garden that, you know, we can't, no one's making anything. The screen agencies aren't making, we can't force anyone to make anything. All you, we can do in terms of regulation, incentives, culture to try to create a environment which encourages, you know, good stuff to be made. And so I think, you know, obviously incentives are really key to that, regulations, key quotas, all these things are key, but you don't want to hold on too tight to these things because you don't know where the next thing is going to come from. And particularly when power is concentrated very strongly in Screen Australia's hands, I think you need to be extra careful that things are a bit more transparent and open and, you know, you don't end end up in that sort of Soviet style, this is... (laughs) This is what good culture is because generally, you know, that ends up being a vehicle for power to be able to control what is deemed worthy and cultural, culturally of value. But I think for me, the big thing that could change that would help encourage a, a better, more fertile ground is, is that, you know, the streamers are coming in. We're at a very early time with the streamers coming in to, to, to make television and film in, in our industry. I'm not too worried quota-wise that we need big quotas because I think they're going to be making Australian stuff. But I think the danger is that they are studios um, in the US very much, as well as platform. You know, you watch on Netflix, but Netflix are actually the production house for a lot of shows. And we need to make sure that there's a really diverse, competitive, fair playing field with a lot of production companies all competing. 
because um, that's what you want in a sort of garden that's going to work as, you know, lots of different seeds and things growing. And you want big ones and they can be foreign owned. You want middle size, you want small ones. And you want them all to be pitching things to the streamers and whoever's going to buy, but the streamers are a big part. And you want good terms of trade where if they say yes, they don't say, thank you, we love that idea. We're going to make it in-house and we're going to pay you $20,000 per episode. But that's where the government can be really helpful in setting these terms of trade, which say that if you're going to make use of the 30%, incredible 30% offset for television uh, or 40% for film, um, then you need to do it in a way that um, benefits the industry to the maximum uh, ability. And that would be to ensure that they commission arm's length production houses. I think that will make a big difference. Um, and I also love your, your idea, which I hadn't thought enough about before, before reading um, it, uh, about sort of harnessing the brand of Australian film and television and, again, creating a bit of a snowball out of, out of you know, connecting the dots between the shows so that people, audiences feel like they can, you know, feel proud of what we do as an industry, that they feel it does have a lot of sexiness value, but you're right, everyone gets texts about, you know, clothing sales, but no one's, no one's feeling part of the Australian film and TV industry. It gets very dispersed. And I think a lot of, you know, some of that issue is because, as you said, uh, you know, shows are just on these streamers. Where are they? They're not advertised. Netflix doesn't advertise shows. Some of the others do. But it sort of can all disappear a little bit. Whereas when it was on Channel 9, Channel 10, it was, everyone was huddled around the TV and you sort of were, were directed at those things. So finding ways to bring the story of Australian content together um, I, I think it's a, really, uh, it's a really interesting challenge. I don't know what the answer is, but I suspect Screen Australia in its various capacities, this should be one capacity is the flag leader, not just the, you know, there's the transparent um, box ticker for what qualifies as Australian content. There's the handing out the money part of direct investment. But what about the, the sort of brand Australia? You know, I think that's an interesting area to look at. Mm. Emile's company spans both the UK and Australia. Emile, is it easier to get financing for shows that are based out of the UK compared to here? You know, there are pros and cons. You know, we have better um, incentives here, the 40% and the 30% are better here. But England has stories that are more exportable. Often, you know, the, through dint of colonisation, there's a... <laughs> there's a uh, you know, a treasure trove of stories that people around the world are interested in because they're seen to be the centre, whereas we're more the periphery. So we have a feature film, um, The Royal Hotel, about to start production here now, Screen Australia Investors. It would have been easier to finance five years ago. You know, it's got a lot of great credentials. We really struggled, but we got it together. But we've got a film in London at the moment, which is, you know, we're having a real tough time with. It's got fantastic credentials. We're going to get it together. But I think generally speaking, feature films is an area where people are struggling more and more. The streamer money is coming in, pushing costs up, which is great for the industry. It trains more people. There's probably a bit of a lag between all that money coming in and the training. So we're in a bit of a crisis of, uh, of crew at the moment, but that'll sort itself out. But the world of theatrical feature films is, is a world that is in... Is, is probably not going to be what it's ever been before. Because there is that streamer money that's in there, to build a company 
based on the theatrical model, what we did with Lion or The King's Speech, those sort of movies, um, I just don't think you can think about it in the same way anymore. And, and you know, their, their pluses and minuses will probably get bigger audiences with smaller windows. We've got theatrical features that might have three weeks window and then it's on a streamer. And that means it can never really break out theatrically. It can't do $10 million with a three-week window. But for the average movie on the whole, across everything, you'll probably have more people seeing those movies. There's nothing worse as a producer than having a film with a 12-week window. It's been out and, and it's off the cinemas after week three and, and, and all that marketing money's wasted as you've got to wait another nine weeks before it's actually you know available on DVD and other things. So I think... You know, they're pros and cons. Yeah. Emil mentioned that I did an interview with him. That's because um, he's got an interview that sits alongside my essay and also Tony Ayres does as well, who last year made Fires, which to me was one of the best Australian dramas made last year. And he also made Clickbait, which is unrecognisably Australian but managed to get $52 million out of Netflix and was shot here. So both of those things I love. We've only got 10 minutes to go and I just want to make – I, I asked you all to think about how we make more and better film and TV with Australianness on screen, and I just want to make sure we flush out all the things you thought about as a result of me asking you that. Um, were there things you wanted to say on that score, Grania? I think for us, what we're thinking about in in that area is, I mean, it goes back to Emil's analogy of the the garden and kind of planting those seeds. So working with people um, at an emerging level. Um, so certainly with writers and creatives, but also with producers. How do you build a business? So you can't kind of get to great content if you're only going from project to project and you can't think about a longevity of where you're going to be in, you know, five years' time or have some ambition and some scaffolding to help you get there. So there's a bit of work around that. Also looking at those kind of um, mid-range businesses. So again, independent production companies, how can we help them to grow? How can we help them to access international finance for Australian shows and work with them to, again, develop their slate, but again, think about things as a business on the other side of that, we're working very purely with creatives as well. How do we support writers? How do we look at the showrunner model, which is, you know, that Tony Ayres speaks about in um, your interview with him as well, and support writers to develop their stories and to understand how they might want to pitch those internationally because how you pitch internationally is quite different to how people pitch here. So giving people those tools to be able to operate. This is a global industry. And we're not going to be able to compete globally if we don't have those kind of same tools and understand that market and how to get in there, I think. Mm. So that's a couple of the kind of ways that we're looking at it. We have state agencies across the land. How would you describe what Screen Australia is responsible for compared to them? And I also often think, I don't know, you may not agree, but but creating more competition between the state agencies and also realising that they're sort of closer to the ground in terms of finding new people, et cetera. I mean, what do you see the relationship now between federal and state and do you think that needs clarifying, which is something I bring up in the paper? Um, I think it's very collaborative. I don't know that it always was, but certainly since COVID, like at the beginning of COVID, all the state agencies and Screen Australia started having meetings every two weeks on Zoom and they've continued. So we do, we continue to do those meetings. So it's made a very kind of collegiate way of working where, you know, issues 
issues are raised, what people are concentrating, what the priorities are. There's also other forums where that um, group also meets to talk about crew capacity and training. What are we all going to do? Nobody wants to duplicate. So everybody's doing, let's say, location manager training in every state, but nobody's looking at accountants or that kind of thing. So there's a lot of discussion around that. Um, I'm working with the guilds and industry bodies as well. I think it's um, collaborative with the states from the Screen Australia point of view because we look at what are their priorities, who are they tracking in terms of talent. They do slightly, the states do slightly different things to Screen Australia. There are things that will have state funding that don't have Screen Australia funding and converse as well um, will happen and I think that's good. I don't know that you want more competition between the states. It's already highly competitive um, in certainly in certain areas. And obviously some of the states, um, certainly the eastern states, where most of the industry is based, have much higher budgets than, let's say, Western Australia might have. So that kind of collaborative thing lifts all, all the states, really. You know, I know that Western Australia sends people over to work on productions in the eastern states as a as a talent escalator because they don't have the same level of production there. So it's quite hard to build a production industry if you don't have production. So it is about trying to work collaboratively so that, you know, Screen Australia is supporting those smaller states as well to build more of a national industry. What do you think about the notion of the states carrying more weight in talent escalation, notwithstanding what Christina said about New South Wales not having enough money, but we can get on to the man with seven children and ask him for a little <laughs> bit more? Um, I think I think both. I think there's space for both um, in terms of talent escalation. I think you know Screen Australia has more resources than the states do for this kind of thing. So I think there are you know some of those initiatives that I spoke about. They're done in conjunction with the states, so that everybody's got a got some skin in the game in those kinds of things. With Screen Australia involved, it can sometimes open more doors. We can do some you know add an international element to things as well. Um, support people to get to markets and all of that kind of stuff. So it's it's slightly different. And, you know, when we go to markets like Cannes recently, we'll have a whole list of talent and projects that we're then pitching to sales agents and to other festivals and all the people that we're kind of meeting with so that the states generally are not in a position to do those kinds of things, but Screen Australia can do that. Yeah. So I think it's kind of, it's both and as opposed to one or other. Yeah. Christina, you get the last say. Oh, More gosh. and better film and TV with Australianness. How do we? How are we going to do it? Gosh. <laughs> well, I guess I can only really talk from our perspective, right? As a as a pretty small company, there's like three and a half of us, but I do think we punch above our weight in terms of the output that we have, and we do not only want to make one film a year or you know two films a year. We do want to make three or four, and we want to go into television. And the only way to do that is to have many more doors of funding. So we we usually traditionally finance them through international sales agents and GAP. And so we have to have strong market interests. But it's a, I mean, huge benefit for us to have, you know, Screen Australia and the state government agencies and, and the tax rebate to be able to do that. But it's not the only way. So we do look at international you know, I guess platforms and streamers to help that. And in some ways over the last few years, it has been pretty exciting that they did open the doors of to creating more, I guess, risky, what they call risky productions. And, and I think also partly foreign language or just being much more open to local, authentic, you know, more specialized local content. And that's kind of 
exciting at the same time, which I think is is sort of opposite to what you're saying in terms of the international invasion, I guess, or the US invasion of the Australian-ness. But I do think that they have opened up many doors for us as well to be able to create more with international money and then topping it up with local. Mm. I'm going to wrap it there. I've had the wind up. So thank you to Currency House. Thank you to Sydney Film Festival. And thank you so much to Emil, Granya and Christina for coming along and talking about this. 